All right. Well, obviously dad is gone, so asked me to fill in this evening. And really took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to talk about because this has been something that's been on my heart for a long time, but also something that's a big can of worms. And so I'm really nervous about it, just being honest with you guys, because I don't want to say anything that that goes against scripture. I don't want to say anything that's going to lead anybody to think something other than what I'm trying to say. And so uh, what we're going to look at tonight is the Bible um, because we've done an excellent job. I feel like dad's done a wonderful job diving into scripture and really peeling this apart. But one of the things I keep thinking about is how do we understand this as a foundation? If we're going to keep diving into this book, how do we know that this, this book is really what this book is supposed to be? And so I wanted to spend a week just diving into the Bible and figuring out how this book truly came to be, what its purpose is, uh, things like that. And so if I say anything that is that sounds off to you, please address that. I, I really don't want to... Yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, just kind of explaining why I feel so passionately about talking about the Bible tonight. Uh, he says in a preface to The Paradise Lost, that the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a, th- a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. After that has been discovered, the temperance reformer may decide that the corkscrew was made for a bad purpose, and the communist may think the same thing about the cathedral. But such questions come later. The first thing is to understand the object before you, As long as you think the corkscrew was meant for opening tins or the cathedral for entertaining tourists, you can say nothing to the purpose about them. So in order to understand the Bible, the first thing that we have to look at is the purpose of the Bible. What is this book even about? And I I open the floor to you guys. Does anybody feel like they have a really solid answer for what the purpose of the Bible is? It's an instruction manual for how we are to live our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Revelation of who he is to mankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you sit <laughs> down over there. Sorry about that. He's not allowed to have opinions like the rest of you in this. He can only mute himself. We have no control over him. (laughs) He cannot be contained. Those are all. Those are all true answers of the purpose of the Bible. Um, Absolutely. And so I would, as I dive into this, I am not giving you guys a bunch of answers tonight. This isn't going to be one of those where you're going to walk away and be like, "Well, I just got this amazing epiphany." My, my passion for this this message here is that you guys have sparks that go off, that think, oh, I've never thought about that before. I want to go dive into this deeper. And I know everyone says that. Go home and do your own homework. I truly mean that. I hope in this message there's something that is sparked in you that says, wow, I, I've never thought about that. I need to go find out what that is for myself. So I have an answer when somebody asks me, what is the purpose of the Bible? We're also going to look at what is the Bible, just from face value. What, it, what does this actually entail? Uh, who wrote the Bible, some really interesting things about who actually sat down to write down Scripture. And then we're going to look at the, the inspiration of Scripture by God as well. So 
Getting into the, the Bible's purpose, Logan shared something earlier this week on Facebook, a article, I don't even know who the heathen was that shared it, but <laughs> talking about how we can't put Scripture above God, that too often in the, in the church we, we really worship Scriptures, and we make that higher than God. And it's complete garbage because this, the Word is God. You can't separate the two. However, it does bring up an interesting argument where oftentimes I do see Christians that elevate Scripture to a point of Scripture saves them and not Christ. And we see examples of this even in Scripture. The Pharisees um, were there when, when Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, when they claimed that he was breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus goes on to, to claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. These Jewish leaders begin to question him immediately about this. And this is his response in John 5, 38 through 40. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you did not believe. You study the scriptures diligently, and I can almost guarantee you these Jewish leaders studied the scriptures more than you and I did, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So I want to make this very clear. Scripture alone cannot save you. It takes an act of God calling upon your heart and accepting that scripture as the instruction book, just like you said, to love God and to learn more about him. This is just something I wrote. You guys can take your own version of this, but I believe the Bible is an epic narrative that reveals who God is. It is a story of earth's creation, a fallen, a fallen world filled with sin and a king who left his throne to sacrifice himself for the redemption of his people. It in no way is about us. It is all about Yeshua HaMashiach. And if you're reading this book, trying to put yourself in as the hero to these stories, you're missing the point completely. This book entirely points to Christ. It reveals who he is in every single jot and every single tittle reveals who Christ is as a person. So, like I said, if you are putting yourself as David and Goliath and you think that you're David in the story, that's, you're, you're missing the point completely. This verse right here in, in 2 Timothy perfectly sums it up. Um, and I'm going to give you a lot of my opinions, but I'm also going to give you some scripture to back up what I'm saying. And I think this verse says it all completely. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for, wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is, so here's our answer. This is the purpose of the Bible right here. It's telling you what it's for. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And one of my favorite verses in scripture, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. What is the path? Where are we going? Where does that path lead you? That path leads to Christ. The word leads you to Jesus that's my interpretation of the purpose of Scripture, and I would encourage you to, to come up with your own, keeping it in context of that verse in Timothy. But next we're going to look at what is the Bible. And I found this really fascinating because if you were to ask me before researching this, I probably would have told you that the Bible is a lot of 
laws, rules, and a lot of uh, long-winded speeches by some prophets and that kind of thing. But really, the Bible, in a, a large majority, is actually just a, a story. It's a narrative. The narrative portion of Scripture equals 43%. There are 502 chapters that are storytelling. And the, the story itself is telling the story of what God has done to save and form a, a special people. Again, all pointing us to our need for a Savior. The next portion, a third of the Bible, is in poetry. 387 chapters, 33%. And I'm very like analytical, so my brain doesn't necessarily think poetry right off the bat. But it is fascinating to me that poetry is meant to, not meant to convey information, but it's actually a type of literature that condenses language to convey emotion. So there is very much an emotional aspect of scripture. Um, even though I think sometimes we try to take that out, we try to not get focused on the emotions of it, and we really try to look at the, the letter of the law, which is good, we can't swing that pendulum too far where we take the emotion out. We have to understand there is supposed to be a, an emotional connection to this book. And finally, a, a quarter of this book is in discourse. There are 300 chapters. This would be like your speeches by Moses, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the letters of Peter and Paul. Where would the laws fit in those three, you think? In the discourse. Discourse? Yep. I'm going to define some terms here about the Bible. And one of the reasons I was so nervous about this is because even I spent probably a solid three weeks just watching sermons and studying into this. And I feel, in some ways, more confused than I was when I started. And a lot of that's because there is no clear, like, definitive terms that are just everyone agrees on this one thing. So I think it's important to define some of these terms before I, I go into what the Bible is. Uh, and the first term that we have to look at is the Pentateuch. This is otherwise known as the Torah or the first five books of Moses. These are Genesis, Bereshit, Exodus, Shemot, Leviticus, Vaikra, Numbers, Bamidbar, and Deuteronomy, which is Devrim. This literary category of the Pentateuch reflects the traditional Jewish grouping of these books together as the Torah. Now, in Jewish tradition, this is the written Torah. They also have the oral Torah, and this is that aspect of laws that would, if we stacked it up, would reach to the ceiling here. When... Anytime you read in the Bible when someone talks about Jesus breaking the Torah, and he, which he can't do. If he broke the Torah, he would not be the Christ. Um, but anytime he's breaking the Torah, it's this oral Torah that they're referring to. Nothing in the written Torah did, did Christ ever break. So just wanted to put that out there. Next up, uh, we have the Septuagint. This is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and the Hebrew Bible is going to be the Tanakh. I'll get to that in a little bit. But the, the Tanakh is the entirety of our Old Testament. This included, the, the Septuagint included the Apocrypha and was made for Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt around the 3rd and 2nd century BC and adopted by early Christian churches. This was the, one of the versions of the Bible that would have been around at the time of Christ. And what's interesting about the Septuagint is that there are a lot of themes that, divide, that define the Hebrew scriptures, but one of the really important aspects of Hebrew scripture is the role of empires and the fact that Alexander the Great in the 4th century took over Israel and essentially pushed, you know, took over so much of the world that Greek became a language that was so widely used out of necessity and desire 
that they, it came to a point where the Bible needed to be translated into Greek. So it originated as a Jewish scripture, but eventually uh, we did receive scripture as a Greek document. The Septuagint is studied a lot today for its text-critical impacts because you can reverse engineer the Greek into Hebrew. So it's a really good source document to study things if you're looking at Greek and Hebrew. So real quick, so things like yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls, was that written in Greek or was that more Hebrew or a combination of some of each? It was a combination of some of each. Mostly it was Hebrew documents. They had some Hebrew documents, some Latin, some Aramaic, and Greek in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They had different versions of each. Yes, I will. Yep. I just wanted to highlight it so that you guys know that it was in the, yep, it is in the <laughs> Septuagint. Uh, this Septuagint, this is kind of the, the legend of how it comes, and this is one of those deals where I was like, perfect, I got my answer, I know what this came from. And as I studied more, I found out, yeah, that's probably not how this worked. Like, this story is probably not accurate, but this is the closest thing we have to an explanation for the Septuagint. And in the letter of Aristius to Philocrates is a Hellenistic work of the 3rd or early 2nd century BC and was assigned by some biblical scholars to the Pseudepigrapha. This letter describes the Greek translation of the Hebrew law by 72 interpreters sent into Egypt from Jerusalem at the request of the librarian of Alexandria, resulting in the Septuagint translation. So the legend has it that the library of Alexandria wanted a copy of scripture and so they wrote a letter to the high priest of Jerusalem and asked him to send some translators so what he did is he picked six transcribers from each tribe so there were 72 total that were sent to Egypt and they each were put in their own rooms respective rooms so that there wasn't any contamination of ideas or thoughts and that they all came out with the exact same copy of this bible now I cannot prove this but it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was a, a providence aspect of being able to come out with this document from 70 different sources to back that up. There's also nothing that disproves this, but I just don't want you guys to think I'm standing on this as uh, gospel truth. Uh, also to note, if you look at the Septuagint, it's actually the sept is the Roman numerals that make up 70. That's where the Septuagint actually got its name, was those 70, 72 uh, transcribers. Um, Tosh was bringing up the Apocrypha here. This is a uh, group of biblical, re biblical or related writings not forming part of the accepted canon of Scripture. The biblical Apocrypha denotes the collection of apocryphal ancient books thought to have been written sometime between 200 B.C. and A.D. 400. I'm not going to read all those um, books there, but you can see there's a, a long list of these. What ended up happening is after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there was increasing persecution from the Romans and a lot of competition for new writings. There was a lot of um, plagiarisms going around, people claiming to be disciples at that time, especially among the newly formed Christian church. So the Jewish leaders came together and declared their first official uh, canon of scripture eliminating a lot of these books from the Septuagint. Up until this point, as far as I can tell, they, they accepted it as part, of, as part of good learning, a part of history, um, but they did not put it at the same level of Scripture, but it was in their Scripture. So 
Christ would have read the Apocrypha. This would have been something that was in his wheelhouse. But it seems like the Jewish leaders at that time did not accept these books as the same level. So when it came to the point of you've got a bunch of Gentiles that are coming into this and they need to come up with an actual canon, they said, okay, this is too confusing. We're, we're cutting these out of canon and we are setting this as the, the standard. And I'll get into the setting of that canon later on. There was also the New Testament Apocrypha. So all the, the original Apocrypha was all kind of Old Testament books, things that took place before the New Testament. But there's also a lot of New Testament books that we don't have in our, our current Bible. Uh, you can see a list of those there. And these writings have been cited as scripture by early Christians. But since the 5th century, there's been widespread consensus um, that basically the New Testament we have now is the modern canon, and it is what we're supposed to have. Um, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant churches do not view any of the New Testament Apocrypha as scripture. Uh, diving into kind of how the Old Testament came to be, I wanted to bring this quote up from R.T. Beckwith. He is one of the leading experts on the formation of the Bible today. And I thought this quote is, is very interesting. He says, it is very striking that over a millennia, ranging from the 2nd century BCE to the 1st century CE, so many writers of so many divergent groups, Palestinian, Hellenistic, Pharisaic, Pharisaic, Essene, Christian, so show such agreement about the canon of the Hebrew Bible. None of these witnesses are concerned with asserting that the authority of the books they mention. Rather, they all assume the scripture's authority and go on to debate about their interpretation. It is clear that these groups do not speak simply for themselves, but represent Judaism as a whole. Any inference that the canon was decided by councils must be abandoned. The role of later councils was not to decide the canon, but to confirm decisions about the canon already reached in other ways. So... You'll hear a lot about some of the councils that we get into, especially when it comes to the New Testament. When it comes to the Old Testament, they didn't have councils. They just all basically accepted Scripture as what Scripture was supposed to be. Um, there really wasn't any debate about it. So anytime people got together to discuss it, it wasn't, hey, should this be in here or not? It was, what do these things actually mean? Which I think just proves that what we have as Scripture today is, is what it's meant to be for a long time. Especially when you look at the the dedication that the Jews gave towards scripture and preserving uh, that because it was an identity to them. They, they took identity in the word. And this is aside from this apocryphal writings. This is aside from the apocrypha. This is referring to the, the Hebrew well, Bible. The yes, okay. yes. Not just the Torah, but... The Tanakh. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so the criteria for the Old Testament that the Jews would have used uh, at that time came from Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, uh, it talks a lot about prophets. And right before this, he's talking about a prophet that will come in the last days, uh, which we know to be as Jesus. But here he's talking about false prophets. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. 
The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So this is one of the reasons a lot of the books in the Apocrypha are not a part of Scripture is because there was prophecy in those books that never actually came true. And this was one of the standards that they would use to select a book as part of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. And important to note that uh, we'll get to a verse later on that talks about how in, in your father's time I spoke through the prophets and now I speak through the Son. So this only applied as far as scripture wise to the old testament where now we know in the new testament that came directly from jesus so this was all they really had to go off of before the time of christ and the the true prophet came uh an important thing to note when you're studying scripture is how scripture actually came to be and how it was handed down from generation to generation and a lot of that came from manuscripts manus scriptus um Manus is by hand, script is having been written. That's where the term manuscript comes from. And manuscripts were so important to the Bible because up until the 1440s, everything was written by hand. Very, very few manuscripts of things even existed. So there wasn't a ton of plagiarism or way to screw up the scripture because there wasn't a lot of people that were sitting down to write these manuscripts by hand where nowadays we can type up anything digitally very quickly. They didn't have the printing press till 1440. And so manuscripts played a, a huge part in the collection of scripture. And those manuscripts, a huge part of the manuscripts, um, the job of transferring those was from the Masoretes. Masoretes? They were active between 500 and 1000 AD. They were the Jewish scribes centered in Tiberias, which was the Sea of Galilee area. And what they did is added vocalizations, accents, cantillation marks, and other marginal notes. In the original Hebrew, there's only 22 letters of the alphabet. They didn't have the vowels sounds. And so if you were to say the vowels, it was only something done orally. And so what happened with the Masoretes, that's how you pronounce it, I figured it out, is they... They added those vowel sounds in there, so they never changed scripture or changed the words or anything like that, but they added things in order to, to be able to write it down. Um, the cantillation marks or like punctuation things that they added, and as well as notes at the top and the bottom of each page. So things like how many times a certain word was used in that chapter or in that book. They were kind of the first people to do cross-referencing. And it's really interesting because some of the oldest documents that we have the Aleppo, um, they have documents from, I forget which years it is, but way before the time of Christ and after Christ, that they found one in the Dead Sea Scrolls and compared the two, they overlapped them and they are like picture, picture over picture, the exact same document. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, they have kept meticulous um, copies of these documents. So anything that is a Masoretic text came from this group of people. And let's see here. The, I wrote down the editions, or the translations of the Bible. So the King James Version, anything from the King James came from the Masoretic text. The New American Standard Version. Most Protestant translations base their translations on the Masoretic text. Everything except for the Message Bible, which was just Eugene being fun and goofy. <laughs> Also in the Masoretes, Masoretes, man, the Septuagint, I wanted to point this out. The Septuagint version of some of the books such as Daniel and Esther 
are longer than those in the Masoretic text. And vice versa, the Septuagint book of Jeremiah is shorter than the Masoretic text. So there is some, some differences. And I'll get to why, at least in Jeremiah, why we have different lengths of those books. But as I studied scripture, one of the things that came, became very apparent to me was that I went into this thinking, I've got to have a, a foundation. I can't let this crack. Because as soon as there's a crack to the Bible, you lose all confidence in that. And when I started reading these things, I kept seeing that as, oh, this is like a crack in the armor. This is a chink. This doesn't make sense. Until I came to the fact of, again, that purpose of the Bible. What is the purpose of the Bible? And in, in any way does this affect the purpose of the Bible? I don't believe so. I believe that you can have different renditions of Scripture, just like there's an NIV and a New King James. There's differences in those Scriptures, but the purpose as a whole and the telling of that story and the inspired words of God does have integrity. Now, I joked about the message version. I don't think you should read the message in my personal opinion, but can you still glean things out of that that give you the purpose of the Bible and, and still point you to Christ? Absolutely. And I think you can do that without questioning the integrity of that. But this is one of those aspects I, I tell you guys, I want you to go home and study this for yourself. If you feel like that doesn't add up in my head and I can't get over the fact that these things are a little bit different, then I think you need to go and do some studying on your own and find out, well, why is there a difference? And does that make a difference to me and my faith and my acceptance of the Bible as inherently scripture? Um, getting to the Tanakh here. The Tanakh basically just is a, a shortened version of the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. So the Torah was the teaching and the instruction. This was the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch that we discussed earlier. Uh, the Navim was the prophets, and then the Ketuvim was the writings. That was like your poetry, um, and then also some of the, the minor prophets, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they combined those two, and Chronicles. This is the oldest form of the Bible that we have. It's a three-part shape, and it's kind of interesting because our modern Bibles actually have a four-part shape. Ours are law, the Torah, and then we go into history, and then we have poetry followed by the prophets. Now, something that's super interesting I found about this is the, the Jews put Joshua, Judges, Samuels, and Kings in as their prophets. Whereas in our version of the Bible, we put them as history. They go right before the, the writings of Psalm, Proverbs, etc. And one of the reasons that I point that out is because at that time, these weren't their historical documents. We look at them now and we're like, there's some really good history in those. No, I think those are prophetic books that we need to look at as having really deep prophetic impact. Anytime that their historical documents were talked about, they, they mention it. They say, go to the, the annals of the king if you want to read more about this. Go to the, the scroll of the wars. Go to the book of Jasher. They mention their historical documents in um, the Navim. In fact, over 40 different times they say, here's where you can go to learn more about that. But the Jews saw these books as these are prophetic books. So something to think about when you read, especially those. Uh, I mentioned that the Septuagint was the Bible at the time of Christ. The Tanakh was also the Bible at the time of Christ. Um, I believe I'm getting to that. I'm probably skipping ahead, but just in case I missed that. Jesus used the Tanakh 
less than he used the Septuagint. So in Scripture, any time that Christ quotes the Old Testament, he would quote the Septuagint version of the, the Old Testament more than he actually quoted the Tanakh, which I think is interesting. I'm not saying that he you know, believed the Apocrypha or anything like that, but for sure we know that he was fluent in both the Tanakh and the Septuagint. We know for a fact that Christ used the Tanakh because in Luke 24, 44, he lays it out the exact same way, the same theme um, that it is in the Tanakh. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be filled, fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So if you're reading our current Bibles, that doesn't make that's like well, that's a little out of order there, but he was quoting the Tanakh, so that, that makes perfect sense. The other thing uh, that I find super fascinating about this Tanakh is too often we kind of separate the Torah as the law, where even the Jews stitch this book together as one solid book. They will mention it as, as separate because the law of Moses was held near and dear to them, but they didn't view this as you know three separate things and we can kind of pick and choose what we want to do. They edited them together to be an entire book. And I will show you that here. Looking at the ending of the Pentateuch of Deuteronomy and the ending of the latter prophets, they are stitched together perfectly. The end brings us to Moses and the, be, the ending of the latter prophets reminds us of the exact same thing. So before they went into a new portion, so going from the Torah to the Navim, they bring up the law. And then from the Navim to the Ketuvim, they bring up the law. Deuteronomy 34, 10 verse 11 but since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. All the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land. And then Malachi 4 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Then if we look at the beginning of the former prophets and the beginning of the writings, we see nearly identical themes that stitch these two books together. Joshua 1, 7 through 9, only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the left, uh, to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I'll highlight, you can see the themes here are, are just a picture-perfect match in Psalms 1, 1 through 3, the beginning of these writings. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of the water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So they, they stitch those books together in a, in a really beautiful way, much like they did with the Gospels. The, the Gospels are similar to the Old Testament in that they are like quilts. The authors composed the books out of independent stories and teachings of Jesus from eyewitness testimony of the apostles.
So what was the criteria then for the New Testament? This was a little bit different than the Old Testament because we now have Jesus who says that in this time, anything you hear is going to come from my son. And so the criteria was a little, it switched a little bit. And it wasn't like there was some, like, here are the rules. But this is what we know to be some of the decision making um, for the New Testament. So the first thing was, was it written by an apostle or an apostle's colleague? They had to be, have a connect a direct connection to the apostles? Was it orthodox? Was it relevant? And is it widespread and long-standing? And this is one of the reasons in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 21 through 22, why they needed to replace Judas. So after Judas went and hung himself, um, they, the disciples got together and said, we need to replace Judas, and here's why. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, so for the length of his ministry. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And this witness wasn't just so that they could go to the Romans and say, hey, we all witnessed this. This witness was for the rest of time that we can be a witness as disciples and share these gospels that this actually happened. So like the, uh, the example of Luke was obviously not there, but he got eyewitness accounts from witnesses, so he would be a case of the apostle's colleague. Now, the formation of the New Testament is really interesting because we didn't really need the New Testament. There wasn't a need for a canon until this guy Marcion came onto the scene. And I did talk about earlier in, in uh, 70 AD that they, there were some writings that were going around. And so there was a, a canon of scripture that was created by the Jews. But this um, Marcion guy is really where we got to the point where we needed to counteract a lot of this heresy that was going around and unite around a solid canon of scripture. Because at this point, the disciples didn't leave us with a all right, here's the, the books that you guys have. Never add to this. This is what it is. That, that wasn't really the case. It took a long time for the New Testament to be formed. It was a, a slower process. Didn't become the Bible that we have today until the time of Marcion. And this is why. Marcion of Sinope was the first Christian leader in recorded history, though later considered heretical, to propose and delineate a uniquely Christian canon, which was in AD 140. This included 10 epistles from Paul, as well as an edited version of the Gospel of Luke, which is known as the Gospel of Marcion. By doing this, he established a particular way of looking at religious texts that persists in Christian thought today. After Marcion, Christians began to divide texts into those that aligned well with the canon of accepted theological thought and those that promoted heresy. This played a major role in finalizing the structure of the collection of works called the Bible. It has been proposed that the initial impetus for the proto-Orthodox Christian project of canonization flowed from opposition to the list produced by Marcion. He was also the first guy that introduced this concept of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And I would love to, to share a message about that someday and just the, the history of the Bible, where we, even the fact that I say Old Testament, New Testament, I don't even like saying that because it's one book. I feel like the only way that I say that is just to differentiate it. But in my mind, it's, it's one book. You can't separate those two. Uh, and this idea of Old Testament versus New Testament came about because of Marcion and his anti-Semitic attitude towards 
the Old Testament being a Jewish thing and the New Testament thing being a, a Greek Gentile aspect. So really fascinating. Would encourage you to look up this guy and understanding the wholeness of Scripture. Uh, one of the best evidences for Scripture being in the New Testament that we have is it being quoted in other scriptures. So things that are quoted amongst uh, themselves is great evidence that it actually belongs there. Um, Paul's letters are referred to multiple times as scripture. Uh, one example of that is in 2 Peter 3.16. Luke was referred to as scripture in Timothy, uh, in 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So even though Luke wasn't an apostle, we know that it was held to that same standard by Paul. Also, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, he has written to you, as also in all epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. In 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Here's just some more context on that. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theopolis, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you have instructed." So these four Gospels were a written embodiment of the Apostles' eyewitness testimony. I'm going to go kind of quickly here through just some of the, the history of the councils or the, the groups that decided on these canon of scriptures so that you can have a little bit of confidence knowing that for the last 1,500 years, it's been generally accepted that the Bible we have today is, is the true word of God. Um, Eusebius in AD 320 through 330 regarded all of the 27 books that we have as um, scripture except for these five books. The only reason he did not accept James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 John, and in 3 John was because he wasn't sure if they were the original author. Um, Cyril of Jerusalem in AD 350 approved of 27, but a different 27. They actually included the book of Thomas and excluded Revelation. And that was a common theme. For a long time, they did not know if John actually wrote Revelation. So a lot of these, like the Laodicea Synod in AD 360, accepted everything but Revelation because they didn't know if John actually wrote it. The first time that the church recognized all 27 books was in, uh, from Athanius, AD 367. Uh, and then after that, we had... Gregory of Nazianius, the African canons, Jerome, Augustine, Carthage Synod. Basically, from that time on, all of these different councils and different congregations across the world accepted the 27 books that we have in the New Testament as Scripture, even the book of Revelation. So if Revelation was so highly contested for three, 400 years, what then gave them evidence to say this was written by John? They, I don't have the names of the documents. There were basically some manuscripts that they found that had writings very similar to John that they knew came from John, but they correlated with the book of Revelation in writing style was basically the main thing. There was never any, like, John, I wrote Revelation on this day, 
but it was mostly from writing style and finding uh, other works by him that they confirmed were his to, to correlate it with Revelation. So if he wrote these letters around to the seven churches and passed them around, like wouldn't there be a lot of manuscripts of Revelation? Like, you would that... think so. You would think I you yeah. I have the same question. I don't know how for three hundred years that was like I don't know. Like that didn't make any sense to me. But even the um let's see here. They came to the burn notice. Even in that first one like Asebius, they accepted Revelation. That wasn't their problem at all. But it was these other five who the other councils seem to have no problem with. So I don't know why there was so much discrepancy among the different councils as to who wrote what. I really don't know. Mm-mm. People are terrible. We're fallible. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's, like, it's, not, a, it's not a surprise to me that there's... Yeah, but I think this adds, and I I agree with that. People are fallible. I think the fact that so many of these people disagreed on a lot of different things, but that eventually they all came to the same conclusion, I think there is an aspect of like the Bible will stand the test of time, and eventually all of these people came to the agreement. Okay, yeah, this is. I think at least for Marcion, I can't speak to the rest of these. For Marcion, for sure, one of the reasons that he, they call the gospel of Marcion is because he changed things in Luke that he did not like, and he put in his own things in it, which is why he ended up being called a heretic, because he was messing with Scripture. Which is so crazy, because so much, almost, I don't know if I'd say everything, but so much of what is in Revelation is all through the Old, te- the mm-hmm. Old Testament. Yeah. It's yeah. just like a duplication of everything that we read before, yeah. just maybe summarized differently. Yep. No, I agree. So all those were kind of 300 and on. I just want to give you some quotes from people that were closer to the source. We just don't have a lot of documents that close to the original apostles. Um, but Polycarp, who was most likely a disciple of John, was very highly esteemed at this time. He wrote in AD 125, Uh, in multiple letters, quoting all of the 18 New Testament books, separating basically the, like, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He combined them. Uh, He quoted from all the New Testament books and quoted Ephesians twice, referring to it as part of sacred scripture. Justin the Martyr in AD 150 referred to the Gospels several times as memoirs of the apostles. And Arrhenius did not call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he called it the fourfold form of the Gospels. So there was... Uh, evidence of a four-part gospel uh, at that time. And that's, that's only 50-some years from the destruction of the temple, so not very far. The second to last thing I'm going to get into here is who actually wrote the Bible. And I listened to a, a sermon by Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, and he brought up this picture that I thought was really neat and provided me a good visual as I went through this. Because like I said... I feel like sometimes I had more questions about this than I did answers. But one of the things I kept thinking is like, how can I accept this Bible as the word of God if it's not just set in stone and we've had the exact same thing for 2,000 years? That's the easy answer. If I could tell you, no, look, from beginning to end, this was the exact same thing. Nothing changed. I can't tell you that. It did change. But none of that changes the purpose of the Bible or the inspiration of it. And so this picture um, by Escher 
is a visual paradox, similar to the idea that God was both 100% human and 100% God at the same time. Some things don't have answers. I, if I was to ask you which hand started drawing first, you couldn't tell me the answer to that. I can. Go ahead. The top one. Asher's. Because he's finished the cufflink on that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there are some things you just have to accept. It is what it is. In Western culture, though, we have this idea that, you know, the, the authors were these, like, empty vessel types where their heads rolled back, their eyes rolled back into their heads. And uh, I'll get into some of the, the theories of inspiration of Scripture. But I think it's important to, when we dive into who wrote these, that you can't separate the human aspect of the Bible and its story and the 100% inspired by God you accept what it is. It was inspired by God, but there is a human element to Scripture that we can't just gloss over and say that the humans had nothing to do with the creation of the Bible. And that's where I attribute, when you said humans are fallible, we've, humans have had an impact on the Bible. And I, in complete faith, know that God's inspiration of Scripture has been consistent throughout all of us screwing it up, recognizing that humans have had a part to play in the Bible from day one. I don't think that it has to jeopardize the integrity of God's word. You, you can't separate these two. So just keep this visual in mind as, as I get into something a little more tricky here. Uh-oh. So while the Bible is completely inspired, it is completely human in the same way that Jesus was both man and God. If you can accept that fact, then you can also accept that the Bible is written by humans, but it is inspired. It has historical origins and earthly concepts. And you may ask, why does this matter? Like, what's, I, I can accept that. It may not be your problem, but it certainly is a problem for a lot of people, especially a non-believer. When you try to tell them this book was inspired by God and came out of the clouds, and then, and then try to prove it from a historical or a geographical or a scientific standpoint, we have to understand how this word was inspired. And I want you to also think about, and I don't have an answer for you, but think about what does it mean for a community of people to accept the fact that the Bible is alive and God's word, but still recognize that it is a historical document. That's a very weird thing for people to think about. If we're all as Christians claiming this book to be inspired and written by people, we're kind of nuts to the rest of the world. That doesn't make sense. And so I think that's a question we have to answer to an unbeliever as we go through scripture, because immediately when, when you... Bring up, when they bring up a topic and you go to scripture to try and prove that, if you don't have this word of God and you know that that is what it is, then the first thing a good debater will do is attack your source. If you don't have a solid source, that's what they're going to attack. And so you have to understand and accept what this is and be able to explain that to someone that doesn't get that. So even though it may not be an issue for you and you just accept it at face value, I think it's worth thinking about and having an answer for uh, to a non-believer. So, who actually wrote the Bible? Let's go to the Bible to find out. Um, the authors of the Bible, the human authors, were, were not being deceitful about this at all. Um, Paul tells us right off the bat here in Romans 3, verse 1 through 2, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So, I mentioned uh, earlier the Masoretic text. One of the reasons the Jews took this so seriously is because they knew they were entrusted with the word of God. They had a reverence for it um, that still continues to this day. 
all of the time in the prophets in Jeremiah 1 verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Isaiah 43 verse 1, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, over 40 different times. Actually, no, that's, no, disregard that. Many times when you read through the, the prophets, it says, thus says the Lord, or the Lord came to me and told me to say this. So they're not, they're not trying to be deceitful about it. They, they tell you who wrote the book. God came to me and said this. Every time that God spoke and wanted something written down, it was written. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this verse that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they were not these like empty vessel robotic people. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write down what God was telling them. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers, how? By the prophets. I mentioned this earlier. In the Old Testament, he spoke through the prophets. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. 1 Corinthians 2.10 But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Um, just some Old Testament sources of this. Authors in the Bible all the time talk about the scroll of the wars of the Lord in Numbers 21 verse 14. The scroll of Jasher we mentioned in Joshua 10 verse 13. The scroll of the annals of Israel's kings in 1 Kings 14 verse 9. Moses and many of the prophets and scribes after him collected narratives from different sources, um, poems and laws, and composed them into this epic narrative. So with that in mind, I'm going to look at how many of these authors of these books actually compiled information and not just being one person. And I don't know why it's taken me 25 years to like figure this out, but I think it's because so often the, and I get into this, so often it's like the first person to write the book comes out and says like, oh, David, written by, by David. And so I just accept that Psalms was written by David. When in fact there were multiple, multiple different authors of psalms, including Moses. Moses wrote a psalm. So I just want to look at that real quick. In Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 11, uh, this is the, the end of the Torah. This is the very last thing that Moses wrote, at least I thought. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. So this is the very end of the Torah. Who wrote this? It couldn't have been Moses. So I point this out because sometimes these books were added onto much later. And that idea of scripture being a living, moving human document comes into play here where Clearly Moses didn't write this. So there are other contributors to scripture that weren't Moses. He, did, he wasn't the only writer of the Torah. This is almost like a sticky note that was added to the end of Moses' writings. Same thing with Joshua in Joshua 24, 29. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Sarah. So Joshua wrote the book of Joshua, but there was definitely some additions that were going on where someone said afterwards, 
Hey, um, yeah, he died. That was his will. Yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting to me when it says, but since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, it's not like they wrote that after he died. It's not like day one, oh, no one's ever come since Moses died yesterday. This was written a long time afterwards where they're like, well, and since Hebrew history, we haven't had anybody come along that's been like Moses. So, like you said, just maybe this is, how do we know that the book of Joshua was written by Joshua? We don't. He says it in, in like, it's his account, obviously, but we don't know that he physically wrote that book. We, we don't know. Does anybody know the longest book of the Bible? No, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the right answer. Seeing is everybody's going to say something. I'm not saying not. The longest book of the Bible is Jeremiah. And I will I rearrange my slides, so just keep that in the back of your mind for a second. Um, first, got to cover the making of the wisdom books. In... Proverbs, this is one of those that I, I always attribute Proverbs to the great Proverbs of Solomon. What a wise man. And then when studying this, I realized, well, yeah, he was really, really smart, but he wasn't the only one that, that wrote in Proverbs. Uh, and again, they're not deceiving you. It's not like he's trying to take credit for all these things. They write who wrote this down. Proverbs 1.1, 1, 1, which is why I thought this. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. But then you get to Proverbs 22, verse 17, and it says the sayings of the wise ones. I, I don't know who the wise ones are, but they clearly were inspired to write something for Scripture. Uh, in 25, verse 1, more Proverbs of Solomon compiled by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, Hezekiah was like 200 years after Solomon. So 200 years later, they must have found a bunch of these Proverbs by Solomon and added them to this book of Proverbs. So there were additions of this as it went on. Proverbs 30, the sayings of Agur, son of Yaka, uh, the only time he is ever mentioned in the Bible, right there. And he wrote an entire chapter of scripture. And then in 31, this is cool, uh, the sayings of King Lemuel, that didn't come from him, something that his mom taught him. I don't know where his mom got it or who King Lemuel is, but just interesting that this book that begins with the life of Solomon is, is not really about Solomon at all. Again, I don't know why I keep thinking that. It's about Christ, so why do I care who the author was? It's a, a collection of people that wrote this book. All right, this is the longest book of the Bible. Jeremiah, not in chapters, but in words. Jeremiah is the longest book of the Bible. And naturally, you would think that Jeremiah was the one to write it, but he did not, and he tells us that. Uh, just kind of an interesting story. In Jeremiah 36... Uh, verse 1 through 4. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. So if you want to know how, how scripture was written, there it is for you, right there. We know this is how Jeremiah came to be. Against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations, from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I propose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from this evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. 
Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah. Nice guy, right? Can you imagine, though, Jeremiah, who's been a preacher for over 25 years, and God says, hey, I want you to write down everything that's taken place the last 25 years. I would definitely be like, hey, Baruch, come here. I got, I got something I want you to write down. <laughs> I'm definitely not writing that myself. So Baruch is the one that actually wrote down the book of Jeremiah. What, wouldn't you say it was still written by Jeremiah, though, just dictated to someone? I would not say it was written by Jeremiah. It was written by Baruch, dictated by, yes. But, yeah, similar to Paul's letters. So Jeremiah writes all down these, these bad things that are going to happen. He takes it to the king. Uh, he finishes this scroll that Baruch, Baruch finishes the scroll and starts reading it aloud in the courts. The king gets super mad, grabs the scroll, rips it in half, and throws it into the fire. Now I want to point out that what was on that scroll was the inspired word of God. God breathed this to Jeremiah to write these things down, and the king ripped it up and threw it in the fire. So that is scripture that was written. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. So this, to me, says there are two different versions of scripture. There was one that was ripped open, or ripped up and thrown in the fire, and then Jeremiah comes and adds to it. I don't know, I can't tell you which version of Jeremiah we're reading right now. If that was the first one, or if it was the second one. I, I have no idea. We don't, we don't know, but it does mean that these additions were a little bit different. Well, is that kind of like when Moses goes up the mountain and brings down two tablets, brings yep. them, and then builds up and gives it, isn't it a different amount of tablets that he comes down with? No, I think it's the same. It's the exact same. But one was written by God and one the right. other was but written by different. I don't know if they were if they were different. But either way, it's like, okay, what was in that first set that Yeah, I'm not sure. sure. They would have had to add this part for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and by the way, <laughs> also there was so much we missed out on that. Don't eat bats in China. Oh, shoot. It was all in. It was all in. So just to add some more, like, fuel to this, I don't know, I don't have an answer for. When the book of Jeremiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were actually multiple different copies. The Hebrew edition, remember I mentioned that the Septuagint has some different ones than the Masoretic text? The Hebrew edition in our English Bibles is the longer version of Jeremiah, but there is a shorter version that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, first glance, I'm like, this is so confusing. I'm so confused. But the more I thought about this, again, it's, it's okay that scripture that, you know, throughout time has changed. What is the Bible actually for? What is the purpose? And did that change the purpose of scripture? No, I don't, I don't think it did. Real quick tidbit. I just found this super amazing. Uh, Jeremiah and Baruch lived in Jerusalem where people didn't sign scrolls but they would put their, their seal around them that was unique to them and in the late 1990s in Jerusalem they found a seal, I don't know how other than God um, from the 6th century BC that literally says Baruch son of Neriah the scribe and so they found, so just some historical evidence that these books weren't just written in the last 200 years and we've all been duped, there is 
a ton, I could do an entire message and keep you here for a day on the historical evidence of this, you know where this they book. Found that? In Jerusalem. They found it yeah. sifting through a bunch of rubble. They, they find these seals all over the place. And this one. wax seal, is it? A what? No, it's the seal. thing that made the seal. Oh, it's when they put the wax seal. Yeah. 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 Do you know where it's at today? I'm assuming. Oh, wait, wait. Um, the Met. What? Say that again. Say it again. Well, he was saying. What? what were you saying? Say it again. We're talking to you. Sorry. <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the city of David. I was just thinking that. Oh, the city of David. Remember when we sat in the Okay, sorry. I believe this is in the Met Gala in New York City. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure it's in the Met. Which, and I remember that because I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all. AOC stole it. That's really cool. Yeah. Yep. And I, you can't see it on here. If you Google this image, you can literally see his fingerprint right at the top. You can see where his finger's up. Um, you talked about Paul. Paul didn't hide this either. In Romans 1.1, 1, 1, starts out, as he does all of his epistles, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. And then later in Romans 16.21, verse 22, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. <laughs> so funny. So, don't get caught up in the fact that just because someone introduced themselves as that person at the beginning, that that is who wrote the book. It doesn't interfere with the purpose of the book itself. That's the right picture. It's the right picture. It's the right one. All right. I'm going to end here with something that I didn't come to a solid conclusion for, so I'm not going to give you... I don't feel confident standing up here and... and declaring something. I'm simply going to bring up some questions. Yes. You're not standing. Good call. That's why, that's why I'm not going to declare anything. But I, I think it's important that we address this question of inspiration of scripture and what is inspired um, before we wrap up. So the word inspired comes from Latin inspirar, which means to breathe or blow into, which itself is from the word spirare, meaning to breathe. In 2 Timothy 3.16, when the verse, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that breathed out is that word. Um, the NIV, I, I think, has that all scripture is God breathed. That is, that is literally what it means, to breathe or to blow into. It's, it's God breathing out his words. So... Yeah. The actual Greek term God breathed is theonoustos, the same root from which we get the word pneumonia. So it, it very much has to do with the, the breath of God. So is this referring to strictly what they would have had at that time and none of the apostolic writing? I believe it's, it's, if it is scripture, I believe the scripture we have today is breathed by God. 
I agree. I just hear that argument a lot, so I was hoping. Yeah. You, you mean answer. people think that when Timothy wrote this, that he's just referring to the Old, Old Testament. Testament? Yeah. Not. The, I hear that argument a lot. Yeah. That the New Testament is irrelevant, not irrelevant, yeah. but that it doesn't, that it's not scripture, because yeah. when this was written, it is. He's not referring. He's to the, referring yeah, okay. to what they would have had at that time, which is not. The New and then you hear the flip side, where, yeah, where people only believe the red letters. I mean, that's a completely different. Yeah, the law is gone. We don't need yeah, to worry about that yeah. anymore. Just the red letters. So, and then you have somebody else saying, "No, no, the old stuff." I would, I would point to, in Second Timothy, where he mentions, like, quotes Luke and mentions scripture there as well. So, New Testament is quoted in the New Testament. And so if they're talking about all scripture and then they're also quoting um, Luke and Mark as scripture, that they're meaning all scripture in that regard, that would be my defense to that. I don't have a 12 point, like here's a bunch of verses to Did you listen to any of Chuck Missler's when you were um, doing all your sermon? I don't think so. Well, yeah, he, um, and I call everything, but I just remember listening to some of his stuff where he talks about, it's a little bit like that numerology thing, but like how you can spell out the word that, you know, the name of God and how, and, and it's, I don't know, these scriptures go this way and these go this way and God's in the middle. I mean, it's just kind of like when he goes through some of that, it's like, well, that's not coincidence. I mean, it's kind of, yeah. I, I don't remember the details, but I just remember being kind of like, whoa. Yeah. No, I, and that was the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah, that was a lot of what the Masoretic text was. Like they had, kind of what you're mentioning, ways of counting to the center of different chapters to make sure, like, if they, they would read the, the paper that they wrote and they would go to the center of that and then check to make sure if the letter was A, they would go to this same document, count, and if that letter was A, then they knew it was the same. If it was different, then that text was to be burned or put into it. If it had the name of God, then they put it in the Geniza. Yeah, this was more like a, every seventh letter, if you took it out, it actually spelled certain things. Okay. Like, like whoa, what, what, yeah. how could that be? It was, it was real things that it spelled. Or, you know, huh. it, there was a whole bunch of stuff like that. Like, oh, isn't that, you know, did that really happen by accident? That right. <laughs> I'll get into the probabilities of this. But, yeah, if you have that, I'd, I'd be happy to watch that. So there's a couple different beliefs on the inspiration of this and how these authors wrote. Um, the first is the partial inspiration, and it's the belief that the inspiration is only with reference to spiritual and moral teaching. There are certain people that believe the historical, geographical, and scientific aspect, aspects. You don't really have to worry about that because they're, they're worried that um, you know evolution or all these secular aspects of Scripture, they don't want to have to worry about defending that, so they say... It's partially inspired as far as all the, the sacred stuff. But there is absolutely no way that you can accept this because either God wrote it or he didn't. And if you can't trust that God doesn't understand science, geographical aspects, and his, history, why would you trust him for the spiritual aspect of that? Like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Theoretical existentialism is the belief that this is an act of God on the reader, that it's not right out of the mouth of God, that the writer's writing something, and as you read it, your heart is given this ecstatic experience. You feel God through the Holy Spirit somewhere along the line, kind of giving you those, those goosebumps. 
Um, but as soon as you allow this to be where the Bible itself is not inspired and that each person is, is inspired differently, you lose that coherency of the inspiration of Scripture. So I'm not a fan of this one either. Um, and here is why. Because, let me go back to that. If you were to believe this, you're believing that these authors were geniuses, that they were the ones that wrote this down, So and you'll get your experience through the Holy Spirit, but the, the people that wrote these were geniuses. However, Scripture refutes that entirely. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would allow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So if these guys were geniuses, first off, they would have been exalting themselves because that's what genius always does. Second of all, why would you write a book about how mankind is depraved? You're not the savior, but there's some random entity out there that is the only way that you can be saved. Makes no sense. Instead, we see them saying, these prophets wrote these things and searched and inquired. They're like, what does this mean? Why would they be thinking that if they wrote it themselves? That, that just doesn't add up at all. Why then were these prophets searching? Bible gives us the answer for that. It's all about giving us the revelation of Scripture. So it wasn't for the prophets. It was revealed to these prophets that it wasn't for them. It was for us down the line and to reveal the coming of Christ, that there was a Messiah coming. Matthew 24, 25 through 27. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you that he is out, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or he is here, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the east, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So these writings that they did not know, they searched in the word to figure out what was happening, and even they couldn't interpret their own words. Why? So that we would have the answer now, so that we don't get deceived by things in the future. Talked about probabilities of things happening. I found this just super fascinating. If these authors were geniuses, how then could they come up with all of these prophetic things that were to take place in just Jesus' life alone? So just taking Jesus, it's believed that there is over 300 Old Testament prophecies that came true in the New Testament. 300. Peter Stoner, awesome name, chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College, was passionate about biblical prophecies. With 600 students from the Introversity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. Just eight. They came up with an extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of these. The conclusion to his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy just eight of those 300 prophecies was just one in one to the 17th power. It's, it's impossible that these people in the Old Testament wrote these things without there being an inspiration of God to their writings. The last one is dictation inspiration. is the belief that the Bible is written through mechanical dictation. This is the one I mentioned where the writers are just robots and that their eyes rolled in the back of their heads and they just wrote whatever came to them. 
that they were put into a trance. Um, but instead, we see that these authors have unique style and use of language. Their emotional attributes play through in their writings, and that God used these writers as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Um, this is something that could have worked. I'm not saying God didn't have the power to do this, but I think in reading Scripture, we know that um, that is not how it is because these writers wrote about their thoughts, their experiences, um, while under the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. Did, did people really actually believe that? Yeah. They actually went into like some catatonic state and then... Yeah, that it was downloaded to them and they just wrote... Oblivious. They wrote word for word what God wanted them to write without any... Is there a specific denomination that adheres to that? Or just I don't know. I'm not sure. Wasn't that the oracle of Delphi that she was like over a there was she like was poisonous over, gas coming up and she, she was going okay, to trans state magic mushrooms the whole time yeah. Tim Mackey from the same message that I listened to had a, a, just a great summary of the Bible and what its purpose is he says the book of revelation is the content it is God's disclosure of his truth the method in which God breathed it out. In Revelation, God makes himself known. Inspiration is the vehicle. Through inspiration, the Holy Spirit takes the revelation and puts it through the mind of a human writer who writes it down as it flowed from God through the Holy Spirit to their minds. They wrote down the very words God wanted written down. And I'll let you come up with your own definition of that. But I think that's a very good way of summing up my, at least my belief and where I'm at on the inspiration of Scripture. Um, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Jesus and his view of Scripture at this time. Because in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. So you have three possibilities here. Either one, the Old Testament has no errors, and so I, I have full confidence in it. If Jesus has full confidence in it, then I have full confidence in it. That's option number one. Option number two, there are errors in the Old Testament, and Jesus didn't know about it, which would kind of make him a liar. And then number three... There are errors, and he knew it, and he covered it up. Didn't worry about it. Those are your three options when you read that verse. And so I'm choosing to accept that Jesus said that the law was not going to pass away and that everything in this, not to, to one jot and one tittle, will by no means pass away. If he said it, then I'm okay with it. That's my acceptance right there. Uh, in Revelation 22, 18 through 19, it says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which is the end book. This is the end of Scripture. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I believe we have the entire story from start to finish. There's nothing more that we need to add or to take away. And I bring this up because my last 
point that I don't even have a slide for is about the inspiration of scripture that I think we need to be very careful when we talk about being inspired by God and having a reverence for that inspiration. Because if you believe that something is truly inspired by God to the level of scripture, well, I'll just say, I don't think that there's anything today that God will breathe out to someone that is inspired, uh, an audible breathing of God to someone that can be on the same level of scripture. Because we have everything we need for the, the story of Christ from beginning to end, and that is all we need. I am not saying that people do not hear from God, but when it comes to Scripture, the book is, is sealed. It is done. There's no editing because, and why, why I say that I don't think people, I think people need to be careful about saying they're inspired by God is because our words need editing. Whereas God's words don't need editing. This sermon was not inspired by God. This wasn't audibly from God to me that I am just a mouthpiece to you or writing down. I think I'm inspired by the writings of God and I can be inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit to condense language that I have and to, to take inspiration from the Holy Spirit. I don't want to discount the Holy Spirit. But just be very careful when we talk about the inspiration of God and that that breathing out of his word. Um, I just want to caution on that. And I'd be happy to discuss that further because one of the things that I have had discussions with people this week a lot was like, do you believe that you can hear an audible voice from God? And I don't have an answer for you. But that is the question I, I have and I'd be willing to discuss that afterwards. I think that would be a great discussion because like I said I want this to be a, a true Bible study and not just of me giving you a bunch of answers and you take it home and, and sit on it I would love to have a discussion so with that I am going to close um, does anybody have any prayer requests though before I do that <laughs>